All right, let's, let's get on with today's message. Matthew chapter five, verse 20. Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And we, we talked about this last week. If you want to enter another country legally, then you need what the authorities there require, something like a passport. And if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says you need what God requires for entry. And he tells us here in verse 20 that that is righteousness, a kind of righteousness that he describes as one which exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. But practically speaking, what does that look like? What does that righteousness look like? That's what Jesus is going to begin to answer for us now. He's actually going to give us six examples of this throughout the rest of chapter five. And we're gonna look at, the, we're gonna look at three of them today. Example number one, example number five, and example number six. And we'll do, when we look at Matthew 5, 27 to 37, we'll do the other three next week. All right, so as we go through these examples, I want you to keep your ears peeled and listen because what you're gonna notice is that in every single case, Jesus compares and contrasts the righteousness that the scribes and the Pharisees had with the righteousness that he says exceeds that in which we need to enter the kingdom of heaven. And and you'll notice that the scribes and the Pharisees had a kind of righteousness that, that really is very typical of, I don't want to pin it just on religious people, but very typical of religious people today. There's a kind of righteousness that is only concerned with our outward behaviors, right? There's, a, there's another kind of way of life that isn't concerned with behavior at all, and that's not Jesus either. But there's a kind of righteousness that limits itself and it's concerned to outward behaviors. But what we'll find is that Jesus says the righteousness which exceeds that is also deeply concerned with what is found in our hearts. So let's look at the first one, example number one of true righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees in verse 21 through 26. And Jesus says there that you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, so there it is, Jesus establishes himself as the voice above all others. I know what you've heard, I know what your church taught you, I know what your religion teaches you, I know what your schools taught you, but I say, and he speaks with the authority of the judge in verse, when we get to chapter seven, verses 21 to 23, Jesus will say, many will come to me on that day and I will make the final decision concerning them. So Jesus speaks here and says, it doesn't matter what you've heard, I say to you. It's like when my my three-year-old Brianna comes and she says, I say, why did you put that over there? And she says, well, daddy, because Kira said I should, Brianna, I say to you, right? I'm the one that you have to deal with here. This is what Jesus is saying. All right, so here it is. He says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council or the Sanhedrin. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift, it's interesting, he he says that and then he moves into this application of it that you you would think, how does that connect with this? But here's what he does. He says, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and that's, that's a way of saying, if you're, if you're doing what people normally do when they come to the temple, you're offering a gift, meaning things are good between you and God. It's probably a free will offering or a peace offering. It's not a sin offering, right? Because they don't really refer to that as a gift. That's a, that's a sacrifice. But if you're offering a gift to God, uh, and there you remember that 
your brother has something against you, then leave your gift there before, before the altar and go. Because there's something more important to Jesus and he's gonna explain what that is. And notice, notice how he said, if you remember someone has something against you. Did you catch that? We always wait for, well, if that person has something against me, they should come, right? Why should I take the initiative? Jesus is so different. You go, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penalty, or the last penny rather. Let me tell you really quickly what Jesus is is not saying and then I'll tell you what he is saying. He is not saying here that all anger is sinful. Now how do we know that? Well we know that because Jesus never sinned and there are times in the Bible where even Jesus is described as being angry. Look at Mark chapter three verses one through six and you'll see this. In Mark chapter three, verses one through six, Jesus says, or the Bible says here, again, he, that is Jesus, entered the temple or the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? but they were silent. Verse five, and Jesus looked around at them with, everybody? Anger. Anger. Grieved at the hardness of their heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out immediately, despite seeing all that, they went out immediately, held counsel with the Herodians against him, that is against Jesus, how they might destroy him. So it's clear here from verse five that even Jesus was angry at times, and that's enough to teach us not all anger is sinful. Now I know, if you're like me, you want to immediately sneak all of your anger into that category, right, of righteous indignation. But that's usually not how this works, right? But that's enough to establish the point, not all anger is sinful. And so Jesus is not saying that, but what he is saying is that God is just as opposed to our sinful anger as he is to our physical acts of murder. And I know that might sound crazy, but we're dealing with heaven's standards here. I know, I know how crazy that sounds at first, but you have to remember that heaven has a much broader definition of murder than we do. Right? And we actually, as we were studying 1 John together, Robert, we came across this as you were preaching in chapter three. Look at 1 John chapter three, verse 15 for a reminder. You'll, you'll see it there. It says there that everyone who hates his brother is a, not a hater, but a murderer. You see that? And so there's obviously a much broader definition of murder here than you and I often live with. And, and you can't miss what Jesus is trying to say here. There's a kind of murder, or rather a kind of anger, there's a kind of hatred that heaven classifies as murder, and that means that the number of people we count as murderers, they're not just found in prisons, they're not just fugitives, they include us, don't they? That number includes those of us in this room. We've all murdered with our mouths, we've all murdered with our thoughts, and Jesus says all of that makes us liable to the same kind of judgment. So this is the kind of murder that you and I commit. 
Worse yet, it's the kind of murder that you and I can ignore. And that's what Jesus kind of comes to in verse 23. It's so easy to ignore how our murderous thoughts or words have broken our relationships and to just get on with the business of religion as usual. But Jesus confronts that in verse 23, back in Matthew chapter five. And he says there, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and you there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your, leave your gift. There's something much more important to me. Go and be reconciled to your brother. Jesus prioritizes reconciled relationships over religious routines. And he's not against the offering of this gift. Perhaps you've come and you've brought a gift today to, to give to the Lord. Perhaps you're going to offer that gift the way that I am now or by singing up here or by serving in some other capacity, encouraging somebody with a kind word. All of those things are, are very good and welcomed gifts to offer to God. And at the end of verse 24, he comes back and says, come back and offer that gift. So there's nothing wrong with this. I don't mean by religious routines something that is negative. God looks at this favorably, but what I'm saying is that there's something more important to him. And and this actually hit me this week, and I'll just share this with you before I go on to example number two. I I was thinking about this, and, and I stopped and I said, Lord, is there anybody that maybe has something against me? And I actually know about it. Like, I'm sure if I pulled the room this morning and I just said, raise your hand if you have something against me. You know, there would be a number of people that would raise their hands. And I, it would take me a long time to chase all that down and work it out. But, but uh, some people I just don't know about. Other people I do know, I know they have something against me. And there was one particular friend from the past and I, I wrote this, as I was studying, I, I realized that it was more important to Jesus that I send this letter than that I come up here and, and, and work excessively long on my sermon. So I wrote this and I said, hello, so-and-so, I know it's been a long time since we've spoken, years, but I, I felt led by God to reach out to you today. I was reading Matthew chapter five, verse 21 to 26, because I have to preach on that section of the Sermon on, on the Mount this coming Sunday at our church. And as I read it, I was reminded that it might be possible you still have something against me because of the way that I treated you at times in the past. And I know that I've apologized for that before, but reading that passage again reminded me of how important it is to Jesus that I prioritize the reconciling of our relationship. It means more to him than any service I might perform at our church. And I'm a dad now, so I know how important it is to me that my daughters have a good relationship with each other. I'd do anything to help them reconcile should something come between them. And I think Jesus feels the same way about Christians. And I'm not just saying this because I think that it's the right thing to say or to do. Um, You matter. You matter to Jesus and you matter to me as I'm writing this. And, And so I hope things are going well for you. May the Lord bless you today. And may he continue to use you to bless the lives of others. And I I have no idea if I'll hear back from this person because I I truly sinned against this person in ways that were hurtful. And you can't always force the conversation that will lead to reconciliation. A lot of times you can't determine the timing of that. But what you can determine is when you will respond to Jesus saying, go and be reconciled. And that's what I tried to do. And and so I'm praying now, I would appreciate your prayers as well. Uh, I I wanna be able to go through life without one broken relationship. All right, so that's what we're looking at. I think Ephesians 4.26 speaks about this well. You see it also here in Matthew chapter five and verse 25 where Jesus says, go quickly and settle things with your brother. Do this immediately, don't wait. Go immediately and do this. Ephesians 4.26 says it this way. 
Be angry and do not sin. So again, there's the distinction between the emotion of anger and sinning. But do not let the sun go down on your anger. And my wife and I live this way. We, you know, never let us go to bed still angry with each other. But let's try to resolve it right away. All right, so let me, let me go on for time's sake. That's example number one of true righteousness and how we deal with things like that. Example number two, back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Matthew, 30, Matthew 5, rather, 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, then let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, then go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now let me speak to the kids in the room very quickly. Ryan Burns was helpful with this. He said, try to speak to the kids a little bit. Now here's what I wanna say. You know how sometimes your parents have this way of, of coming to you right when you're having fun and doing something else and then they change the plans on you and they want you to do something instead and they say, stop doing that and go do this. And immediately, you don't always say, oh yes mommy, yes daddy, I'll do that right away with a happy heart. That's not the way it works, right? But what Jesus is saying here when he says, if someone makes you do one thing, go one mile, go with them two. I was telling my daughters this this morning at breakfast, then, then Jesus actually wants us to have the kind of heart that says, yes, mommy, yes, daddy, I'll go and I'll do that. But then with that, to even think about how else we might honor our mommy and daddy. So Kira, if I say, go and make your bed, then you can say, yes, daddy, I'll go and make my bed. And even, daddy, would you like me to get dressed as well? See, wouldn't that be great? And you'll know what to expect of your children, parents, right? But, but the idea here is that Jesus is really saying, he wants our heart to be the kind of heart that not only does what's expected of us, but is, that's also willing to go further, all right? So, and let me come back again now to the big people. Let me say this, right? Again, what, what is Jesus not saying and what is he saying? I had so many questions when I read this. And I won't give you all those questions now. I'm sure you had some of them as well. But I'll tell you for now, what he is not saying is that in verse 39, when he says to turn the other cheek, he's not saying that we should never seek protection from physical abuse. It's very important to get because many of us have been in situations where that's happening. We're being physically abused and we don't want to misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. In verse 41, he's not condoning oppression. When someone forces you to go one mile, he's not in any way condoning that. He's speaking about a condition of the heart that's able to go beyond what's expected of you. In, in verse 42, he's not saying that we should just give everyone what they're asking for without thinking it through. Now, because a lot of times I figure, what should I do when I come across someone who appears to be in need and is asking for money per se? Is that what I should give them? I think you have to consider that. You know? And in fact, there was a passage that helped me think through it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. In verses 10 through 12 there, you'll see the Apostle Paul actually talking about that. And he, and he says in essence there, look, if anyone is not willing to work, then he should not eat. And think about what that means for the church. That means that they had a habit of being generous toward people who were experiencing hard times. 
but that they weren't experiencing hard times simply because of things outside of their control. They were also experiencing hard times in part due to their own sinful behaviors and approach. And that's a hard thing to tell as you just look at somebody. But Paul had knowledge of that and said to them, don't enable that sort of approach to life. If someone is not willing to work, doesn't mean that they, they just, you can't say this about everyone who is currently out of work, but if someone is not willing to work, but wants to just, um, I guess sponge is the Jamaican word, freeload. You guys know what that, what that is, right? But if someone is just sinfully trying to use others without being willing to work, Jesus actually, or Paul in 2 Thessalonians says, don't enable that. And so I think we gotta bring that part of the Bible to bear down upon what we're reading here. That's, that's what I meant to say. So I hope that helps. That's what Jesus is not saying. Now what is he saying? Well, he's saying at least a couple of things. First of all, justice should be proportional. The punishment should fit the crime. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That was something that was said uh, back in the Old Testament. It, you'll see it in, in at least three places. In Exodus chapter 21, verse 24. You'll see it in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 20. And you'll see it again in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 21. But the idea was that punishment should not be overly excessive. You know, and you, you shouldn't go through the courts in an opportunistic way to get things for yourself that really don't belong to you. You shouldn't spill, what's one example from today? Coffee from McDonald's on your lap and sue for millions of dollars. Do you understand what I mean? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Proportional justice. And then Jesus is saying something else, and this is probably more important for us today. He's, he's saying that even when the laws of the land and even when the cultural norms give you the right to certain things, as followers of Jesus, we're bound by a higher law. We're bound by a higher law that leads us to renounce our rights to certain things in certain situations. And that's what Jesus begins to spell out for us here in verses 39 through 42. Let's take a look at it again. He says, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right, the right cheek, then turn to him the other also. In, in the Middle East there where Jesus was from, being slapped on the right cheek was, was probably particularly if offensive and, and, a, and a huge insult because more than likely, someone would have used his or her left hand to do that and the left hand had significance in that culture, still does. Um, so that was a particularly biting insult, if you will. And Jesus says, be willing to keep yourself vulnerable in situations for the sake of displaying Christ-like love. And not to so easily be turned off by the insult, but to be willing to absorb it for the sake of Christ. But what you'll see here is that he goes on and he says now in verse 40, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, that was like your, your shirt or something close to your body, then let them have your cloak as well. And if you go back to the Old Testament, I actually have lost the exact reference, but what you'll find is that there was a provision in there that if the cloak was so important to somebody in that time that you actually could not sue somebody and, and take their cloak. You could sue them for their tunic, but not their cloak. And what Jesus is saying again is, be willing as a follower of Christ to go above and beyond what is required of you by any law of the land in order to display, display Christ-like love. And he goes on in verse 41, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, like Roman soldiers could that day. They did this with Simon of Cyrene, who was told to carry the cross of Christ for, for a little bit. And he says, look, if anyone forces you to go one mile, then go with him two miles. And finally, if anyone begs, then give. 
and don't refuse the one who would borrow from you. And I know you're thinking what I was thinking. What if they've already borrowed from you and they haven't really made good on that? Do you just let them borrow again? And look, you've got to think all of these things through. Each situation is different. You need God's wisdom to help you with all of that. But one thing we do know for sure Jesus is saying here is that Christians freely renounce at times their rights to retaliate. We're never, we're never in a place to retaliate. If Jesus is the Lord of your life, you don't have the right to retaliate when someone slaps you on the cheek or, in, or insults you in any way. We give that right up to retaliate because we belong to Christ. We've, we've renounced our rights to money and material possessions. Our right, our sense of entitlement to a middle class lifestyle if it gets in the way of what love requires. You see that where he says, man, let them take your tunic. Let them have your cloak. Give to the one who asks. Let the one who borrows. Don't don't turn away. Let them borrow. And you can see very clearly here in verse 41 that he also also calls us to renounce our rights to convenience and, and to our time. Our time is precious to us, isn't it? But if anyone requires you or forces you to go one mile out of your way, that takes time. That's not convenient. That's sacrifice because you'd rather do something else. And Jesus says, if you belong to me, then your time belongs to me as well. See, Jesus is, <laughs> this, is why, this is why people don't like preaching through gospels. Because you have to deal with Jesus in a way in the gospels that it makes all of us uncomfortable, doesn't it? Don't you and I want to be Christians who can somehow just narrow our concerns down to the things that we think we can do well and just turn the volume down on everything else that Jesus actually says? As Americans, we often have a sense of entitlement. I'm entitled to a good life because I've served God, I've loved God, I've done good things. I'm entitled to a middle-class living because I've studied for years and I've, I've, I've got a, a good-paying job and I've done this. And, and you'll, you'll find this in the Bible. By the time Jesus is finished with us, we're not entitled to anything. We're not entitled to anything in God's world. That point will come through even more clearly by the time we get to example number three of true righteousness. But, but I hope you're seeing this so far because you and I just rather ought to be grateful for the things that God allows us to enjoy. At any given moment, Jesus can require all of these things from us for the benefit of others. And if we cannot renounce all that we have in this sense, not necessarily give up everything that we have, but if we cannot renounce our right to all of them, then listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, verse 33. And he he means this, by the way. Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, everybody, cannot be my disciple. Now, you, you you can believe other ideas if you would like. You can come up with a way to convince yourself, no, Jesus, we actually can be your disciples, even if we cannot renounce all that we have. But I think that verse is clear. So ask yourself this week, what does it look like for me to be willing to renounce my right to my time, my convenience, my possessions, my reputation, my honor? And do I go around walking in here with a sense of entitlement? Like, do I come here on Sunday morning feeling entitled to childcare? I mean, all these things are very important to consider. All right, so let me, let me go on before I meddle too much. Example number three of true righteousness 
that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew chapter five, verse 43 to 48. And you'll find that this is a quote here, a partial quote from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. But this is the one thing Jesus quotes here in chapter five in all these examples where you, where you clearly see that people have departed from the words that the Bible actually says. Part of it is exactly what the Bible says in Leviticus and then the other part is like, well, where did that come from? It's very quick, it's so interesting, right, how different things become like church sayings and, and you just assume that it's in the Bible, like God helps those who help themselves. It's just, no, Jesus would say, you've heard it said, but that's not in the Bible, right? And, and it challenge you, take the walk through the Bible this week, or if you've got one of those search engines, just put in quotes, God helps those who help themselves, and it'll be the quickest Bible search you've ever done. But example number three here, chapter five, verse 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, good so far, and hate your enemy. That's just not in there. Go on, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on evil or the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, then what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers or people like you, then what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now let me say a few things again about this section. When, when Jesus says that we must be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect, I think we get the sense that this is a really huge standard that none of us can live up to. But, but even though that's true, he's not really saying that about being perfect. He, he's actually defining what it means to be perfect here by what he says before in verses 44 and 45 as he looks at the heavenly Father. And so what he's really saying is that just as God's love, our heavenly Father's love, is without discrimination, he, he sends the light of his son and the heat of his son on the good and the evil. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. He doesn't sit back and say, who is deserving of my love this morning? Let me send my love only on those people. And everybody else, no son for you. That's just not the way, somebody got that. That's not the way of the Lord. Do you see that? And Ryan Burns was encouraging me with this again this week in verse 45. I love this, and I'll just mention it. You look, look very, very quickly at verse 45. It says he causes his son, he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good. Did you know that the son is God's son and not ours? Did you know that? That he makes it shine on you and me? I know we take it for granted, but tomorrow, should God change his mind, it would be gone. Like the kid who takes his ball at the playground and says, I'm going home. God could do that with the sun. Jonathan Edwards actually talked about this a few centuries ago. He, in, his, in his sermon, I believe, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, I'm confusing his sermons here in my mind, but he actually talked about this and said, do you, do you think that if the sun had a mind of its own, that it would still shine on you after the way you've treated God? 
Does it gladly give you its light and heat? No. Only the mercy of God keeps that thing above our heads. Only the mercy of God keeps life on our planet going. And we look at that mercy, receive it, and it is so easy for us in our entitlement to still turn around. And listen, I'm not trying to make light of your situation here, but think about how easy it is for many of us to turn around and accuse God of being bad, doing evil, and and being unjust in the way that he doesn't give us what we think we deserve. Our perspective is, is... It's just not what it should be. Look up in the sky the next time you feel like that and correct yourself before you need to be corrected by God himself. No, he causes and makes his sun to shine on the good and the evil. He causes his rain to come down. And I love this for the atheists and the people who believe that there's only natural stuff like matter and energy. Oh, we know the processes by which the sun shines and the rain falls. No, God makes the rain come. God makes the sun shine. See, I love that, right? There's a supernatural cause for the natural blessings that we experience in this life. It's, that's, that's all you need. How many of you in here have heard those arguments? Look, God makes the rain come down. I know about, look, I know about evaporation, condensation, precipitation. I don't, God makes the rain come. He sends it. Whatever else you want to say about the natural processes, God's hand is at work as well. So there you go. You've got supernatural with natural, and nobody can look at you and prove that the supernatural isn't there just because they have an increased understanding of the natural. I know that's good for somebody. Just keep that in your pocket, right? The next time somebody tells you, we know know that God is just a God of the gaps. Nope, nope. Here it is. God makes the rain come. God causes the sun to shine, all right? Now let's look back at this section one last time. Let me point out one more thing. Or I might have mentioned it already. The the key here, the main point then, is that our love is to be without discrimination. We're not supposed to look at people and say, well, this, this child deserves my love today, but this one does not. That's just not the way this works. Jesus actually calls us here to be like our Heavenly Father, and that's what he means when he says, in a sense, be perfect as your Father is perfect. That word perfect is actually translated sometimes mature, complete. You'll see it all throughout the Bible like that, right? But nonetheless, I hope, I hope you're getting a sense as we look through this that that we've discussed the morality side of it, what we're supposed to do, what we're not supposed to do, and there is that aspect to God's commands and God's law. But just as much as Jesus is saying to us how we ought to live, he's also saying, at the same time, this is how you have not lived. I mean, that's, that's really important to grasp. Do you see that? Because he's not just saying, hey, try harder, do this, and you'll be a righteous person and I'll accept you. He's actually saying you've blown it already. I'm just showing you the standard. You've fallen well beneath it and you need something a lot better than your best efforts from this day forward to qualify you to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's one of the main points Jesus is driving home in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I know who you think the murderers are, but you've left yourself out of that category. Let me tell you what murder really is by heaven's standards, and now do you find yourself in the circle? You should. He's doing the same thing with all of these examples, and so where does that leave us? What do you and I need? We need grace. 
We need God's mercy. We need, we need God's grace and mercy for the forgiveness of our murder, for our indifference toward people, for, for the times we walk past people and don't make any attempt to meet legitimate needs, for the way we walk around in God's world with a sense of entitlement that he owes us things. We forget what we owe him and we just talk about what he owes us. Even in the privacy of our own hearts, we, we, we fall so far below what God, what God requires or expects of people that the only hope for any of us in this room this morning is that God would choose to be merciful and gracious to us. And the good news is that's exactly what he's done. I told you earlier to look up at the sun, the S-U-N in the sky, when you need to be corrected. But, but the good news here is that we can also look to the, the Son of God, S-O-N, for the help that we need. You see, the mercy of God comes to us in, in Christ. How is it that people like you and I can actually live this way and love this way? We can change our behaviors here and there, but we can't change ourselves. We can't change our hearts. Any more than a skilled heart surgeon could, could actually work on his own heart. You and, I, you and I are unable to change our hearts in the way that God requires. And so what he says here is Jesus gives us a clue in this last section. When he actually is trying to encourage us toward, encourage us rather toward righteous behavior, he, he says, look in verse 44 and 45. He actually tells us to look at God, doesn't he? Not here, here are some strategies to change your life, but actually, let me give you a savior. Let me, let me have you look at God. And, and God does the same thing in the Bible. Let me have you look at Jesus Christ. And that's the best way to begin to see our hearts adjusting. God actually takes the one perfect life the world has ever seen and finds a way to put it in us through the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you turn from sin and turn to Christ in faith, God through the Holy Spirit puts the life of Jesus in you and then we begin to become much more like the people God always created us to be. And you can see this in certain places in the Bible. For instance, how are we going to live and love this way? Well, we need to receive the love of God that comes to us in Jesus Christ and have that love put in us. How does that happen? Romans chapter five. In Romans chapter five, verse six through 10, we see God's love for us. For while we were, notice the indiscriminate love here, not for good people, but while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still, everybody? Sinners. Christ died for ungodly sinners like us in our place. That's why you never want to deny the extent to which you are ungodly or you are a sinner because those are the people who benefit from Christ's work. You You need to embrace that and then at the same time embrace Christ and the change that he produces in our lives. So that's how you and I are going to love and live this way. It's by looking to Christ. It's by receiving Christ. It's it's not by saying, give me five strategies or three books that I can use to change my life. No, it's, it's by us being changed inside at the deepest level, looking to Christ, our example, looking to Christ, our savior. And you'll, you'll see this again as well. How, how is it that you and I as murderers are gonna find the help and the grace and the forgiveness that we need? Well, it's at the cross, isn't it? Luke chapter 23, verse 34. When the life and the spirit of Jesus Christ comes in us increasingly, that love which is able to pardon murderers, the help that murderers need is seen at the cross. Look at the one, look at the one, Jesus, as he hangs on the cross. 
What does he say about those who are murdering him at that point? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We've all committed murder without knowing what we're doing. And not just the people that we're thinking about, but Christ himself. Our sins have had a share in the murder of Jesus Christ. The, the thing that made it necessary because of God's love and mercy for him to go to the cross. And, and that's why songwriters have said things like this. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood who fixed his loving eyes on me as near his cross I stood. But never till my dying breath will I forget the look which seemed to charge me with his death though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair, why? For I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. But then comes the mercy. But with a second look he said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for your ransom paid. I died that you might live. And, and Jesus extends the same offer of forgiveness to us today. Murder is the whole lot of us. Come to the cross this morning for the help that you need. Come to the cross this morning for the help that you need. There you will find Jesus saying, Father, forgive him, forgive her. She doesn't know what she's doing, and neither does he. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us to to do a number of things this week, to to first just believe what we've heard this morning, to to embrace it, to let it change us, and then also if there's anyone uh, that we we suspect may have something against us or if we have something against somebody else, then I pray that even this morning before we just rush to the table to, to take communion, that we would realize that it's more important to you that we actually move immediately to to reconcile those relationships. I just pray that you do something special this morning by your spirit along those lines. We ask all these things in your name, Jesus, amen.